Welcome to this uh, latest podcast with me, Mabon Apgwinfor, discussing the economy and what it means to us and how we can influence it. Um, and here with me this morning is Dr. Carl Klaus. Dr. Klaus uh, is a recognizable figure for many people um, because of his role in setting up Antirail Hayarn and Nantgurthain in the Llyn Peninsula. Um, but we also know Dr. Klaus as a medical practitioner as well. Uh, good morning, Dr. Klaus, how are you? Good morning, I'm fine, thank you. In spite of everything that's being thrown at us at the moment, now we're, we're, um, we're, we're, we're doing very well, thanks. Uh, and you're back in the Llyn. Uh, again, having moved from Anismon, is that correct? Indeed, indeed, and enjoying it very much. Um, we, we were living in uh, Anismon for 38 years, in fact, I, having started off in uh, general practice in uh, San Alian, just up the road here. Um, in the 1970s, um, I had to move to be within 10 miles of the headquarters for the health authority uh, to be on call. And that took me to Anismon, where we lived until two years ago. And then we're back here now whilst we're building a new house in Penkainewith, where we hope to move. Might be worthwhile, to, before I move to talk much about Antiral here and how I found myself in practice in Sanal here. Yes, by all means, that, that, that would be interesting to understand. Go for it. Because it was a significant move for myself in career terms. And for the family, of course, we just had the one child, David or Dorothy and David and myself, moved to San Alhian in 1970. Hmm. And I was studying at the time postgrad in oncology, the study of cancer treatments, in the Christie Institute in Manchester, and enjoying it very much. Hmm. But then a Saturday morning, BMJ arrives, and uh, on the mat, browsing through that, and seeing this single-handed dispensing general practice in the Thien Peninsula. Yeah. And I thought, was that something I should be thinking about? And why, why would I be thinking about it even when I was enjoying my, my postgrad course, the, the conventional career course? And um, I could go into in some, some details, suppose, but it was, the motivation was the thought of living in an area which was predominantly Welsh which very much was a, a community and something or neither of which I'd had the opportunity to, uh, to uh, experience in any significant way as a child. My mother was just speaking, but my father wasn't. And here was a chance to establish the family, possibly if I was successful in the area. Well, the rest is history, as they say, mm -hmm. I did succeed. And we began, or I began in medical practice in San Alian in 1970, and we moved in as a family uh, very soon after that. Um, one thing that became very apparent, though, very early on in the time I was in San Alian was the level of illness, the level of nature of the illness, the level of morbidity, as it might be called. So there's a high level of uh, blood pressure high levels of depression, high levels of diabetes. And most of these things I felt could be ascribed to the, the state of decline of the population. The population showed considerable signs of um, or collective depression, so very low morale and uh, lack of confidence. 
and they had a direct relationship, uh, it seemed to me, to the conditions that were presenting. The school was threatened with closure. That, of course, was doing nothing for the confidence of the area either. And over a period of time, uh, in fact, within the first year, um, a battle to save the school began, was successful. And two years down the line, 1972, a group of us formed um, a villagers association to try and resurrect, if you like, some of the fortunes of the village, but found it very difficult. At the end of the day, why would Carnarvonshire County Council, as it was then, look more favorably on this small village than any one of the other couple of hundred villages in their jurisdiction, as it were. Mm. And um, so we then thought, um, what can we do to help ourselves? Is there anything we can do, more that we can do? And uh, Dorothy, with her Irish connections, um, had attracted me over to visit Ireland and down to County Cork some years previously where we'd seen the island of Cape Clear, William Clara. Um, clearly wasn't a specific visit to study or in any way, but just a visit to the island for the day. And became aware of the efforts being made there to um, secure the population of that Gilsach, the Irish speaking island as it was. And um, cut the story, we invited ourselves over to Ilon Clare and we met Tad Thomas O'Murcha, the Catholic father, who was responsible, who was chair of the, the cooperative. And um, soon learned how successful they were, albeit with the support of a government department, Giltar Aaron, um, they had established a community cooperative. Mm. And we felt perhaps that that could be a model. So. Two of us from Llanallian, Emrys Williams, a colleague and myself, invited ourselves over, met Father Thomas, and indeed this, it seemed to us, could be a model for the future, for our village. The village had lost something like a third of its population post-war, mm -hmm. gone down from 15 to a, to a thousand. So whilst it was on a different scale to the, the island of, of Cape Clear, the challenge was very much one that was comparable mm. and we presented the idea to the village uh, village meeting in the hall and uh, it was accepted as a model to, to at least explore the problem being that there wasn't such a thing as a community cooperative anywhere in the UK at the time so we had to look um, outside the box as they say for a model which was then um, it was a Welsh Agricultural Organising Society based in Aberystwyth that came up with um, some terms and conditions that would be acceptable to us for the future of what became known as Antirahia. And it was established then in January 1974 as the first community cooperative in the UK. And essentially the role of Antir was to restore the fortunes of the village in whatever way we felt appropriate. So creating an economy, of course, was hugely important to that, but also trying to address some of the, the bigger issues, the wider issues around housing, uh, which, which, which was, I have to say at the time, was appalling in many instances. Uh, the, the, obviously the um, problems around planning, problems around um, the decline of the language with people moving away from the area. There were a whole 
load of issues which we felt we had to face up to and uh, Anthea's brief was to try and address them. Mm. So one of the first things we did was to acquire some land in the village and we built our own factory. Wow. It was just 1500 square feet at the outset. It's now 4000 square feet. But in those days, there was no department for economic development in the local authority. There was no such thing as the Welsh Development Agency. We had to do it ourselves. Mm. Um, we got a small mortgage from Dwyfor, the local authority, and we got some funding together ourselves by virtue of our uh, loan stock, as we call it. So people invested in the Antir and uh, they bought a share, one pound share, so we didn't limit anybody from not joining. That was open to everybody on the electoral list. Uh, but the majority of the funding came in from people who simply wanted to invest uh, in the idea of helping ourselves. And that proved very successful. We, as I say, we built our own factory. It, it inspired a lot of uh, publicity. Mm. And uh, that publicity was, to me, to, even to this day, was quite remarkable. It was a good news story, I suppose, to time when rural areas were being threatened, changing patterns of employment on the land, uh, people were moving away. Rural areas were in decline generally throughout the UK, throughout Western Europe. And a lot of people looked to us for some sort of lead, believe it or not. Mm. And um, that proved um, very um, productive in terms of the amount of inquiries we had as to what we were trying to do. So we had inquiries from Norwegian television, Dutch television, South Africa, South China Morning Star, United States, Indian Reservation, Native American Reservation notes even wrote to us asking for advice and support and so on. It was an ending. But in the middle of all these was an editorial in the Birmingham Post. And the editor um, had written a piece saying, self-help, great news. Why don't more people do it? And at the time then a director of a company in Birmingham said look if you can offer us uh, a building a factory then I can offer you employment and that seemed too good an opportunity for us at the time yes uh, we were delighted of course to hear from somebody we set down certain terms these had to be employment rates that were exactly favorable to anything that was made elsewhere uh, and, and so on. So we, we built the factory, we had the employer, but this was our first salutary lesson. They came, they saw, they took advantage of the skills, but they didn't put in the, the time or the monitoring needed to ensure its survival or its success. And within six months, they pulled out. Mm. And that, I think, is a lesson of, of, of a branch factory. Um, at the end of the day, it may have been uh, bad luck on our part. It may have been, I don't doubt for one, one moment that they were, they were sincere in their uh, efforts, um, but it didn't work out. And so we were then forced, as it were, into a position of having to decide what to do with our, our own advanced factory. Mm. Uh, it was relatively small, but we had in tandem established a, a small pottery in the village from somebody who was from Liverpool, Welsh origins, but from Liverpool originally, 
and wanted to establish a pottery. He's based down in Aberystwyth at the time. And he wanted to come back to, to this corner of the world, uh, which he, uh, he um, saw himself establishing uh, his business on a full-time basis in, in pottery. We were able to offer that opportunity to him. And we also had knitwear at home. So with an empty factory, the next step was to move them both into the factory. So it became a bit more organized, a bit more professional, if you like. And it worked very well for many years. And we, um, we even finished exporting some of the knitwear to Macy's in New York or Japan. Wow. You know, trade shows proved very successful. It was, it was quite a remarkable experience, I think, for all of us who were, were new to these things. Mm. Um, I was, in the meantime, of course, trying to get on with my medical practice and didn't want to ignore that in any way. But it was difficult at times trying to maintain a balance between all the it was coming and going with Ante, all the publicity, and uh, and uh, doing a, a good job, as it were, in, in my medical practice. It was a cooperative. We had a Senet which ran it, and that was elected on an annual basis from the shareholders, and that worked well. Yeah. Uh, everybody um, turned their hands, as it were, to to try and help. Uh, so it was an excellent example, uh, but it inspired others. There's no doubt at all about that. And in Fifth Fine, for example, we saw um, the, the uh, Tavern of Vic, as it's called, the local pub, which had been closed for two years. Nobody showing any interest in buying it. Uh, they decided also to establish a community, sorry, establish a cooperative to buy it. And then the local shop, similarly, um, the only shop in the area, that became a cooperative as well. So those were um, important uh, lessons, I think, that, you know, one success breeds success, as they say. Um, I think it was, um, it, it was a good lesson for people, not just locally, but way beyond as well, that people could help themselves. I could go on then and talk perhaps about Nant Gothen. Well, well the, the story of, of Antirail Hayan then, before we go on to Nant the one thing you said right at the beginning of your contribution there, which has struck me, is um, that when you came in as a GP to Canal Hayarn, uh, you know, you, you didn't have this grand vision about uh, picking the village up and, and doing anything there. You, you came in as a GP. You wanted to help people, um, their physical health and well-being. Um, but what you noticed was that the, the mental and the physical symptoms that they were showing could be rooted back to community and societal problems around the economy, around housing and, and issues like that. And, and, you know, you could see clearly in your medical background that link and that therefore, in order to resolve these symptoms, you needed to resolve the greater societal problems. Is that is that right? Exactly the case, Malbon. And that, to me now, what... 40 years or more later is, is particularly interesting uh, because I was on the board there of Public Health Wales for some years uh, until a couple of years ago now. And what has become, I think, quite well understood now is what's called the wider determinants of health. Mm -hmm. So it's things like housing, things like employment, particularly, of course, the nature of employment, the amount of income, of course, you've got coming into the household. Things like this have as much more of an impact on the health of the population than, than anything else. Uh, 
So the National Health Service, as much as we value it and love it, is essentially a service that picks up the pieces when things don't go too well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, picking up illness more often than not. But these wider determinants, something that was never, ever taught in medical school in the, in the 60s when I was there, uh, I believe they are much more so now, but they are so, so fundamental in terms of getting society um, on a balanced path, if you like, in terms of its own health. Yeah. And uh, I say that that lack of, of, of those, some of those basic facilities or standards within that community certainly had a huge impact on the health of the people. Uh, so if, 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 if we're going to resolve the issues, for instance, just facing the health service and, and ensure that the health service is, is run and funded properly, we need to resolve the deeper societal problems, housing, jobs, employment, the economy. We start to resolve those issues and other issues then start to resolve themselves. Absolutely. It's a very clear equation to me. If you get those right, um, I mean, you only need to look at some of the more successful um, societies or economies in the world, some of the Scandinavian ones or the West Coast of the United States, you, you'll see levels of well-being which are far, far greater than our own. Mm. And that's because they've invested in, in the, the basics uh, of a good society. Mm -hmm. That, that's, I think that's a really important um, message and lesson there for anybody listening and for us involved in policymaking, certainly. Uh, okay, so we've got that. Uh, we understand the grounding with, with Antiral Hayarn and how you came involved and, and helped establish it and what it meant to Llanal Hayarn uh, and, and the community there. But then there's the other story, <laughs> which is um, quite possibly more fantastical than, than Antiral Hayarn, which is Nantgurthairn. Um, can you explain a little bit about what Nantgurthairn is and how it came to be and your involvement with that? Sure. I, that could take a long time. But <laughs> I, I'll, I'll try and be brief. Um, I first saw Nantgurthairn, indeed, a chance visit back in the 60s uh, when I was at, um, uh, I came down with Dorothy, um, still at, at medical school and uh, family in Llanberis, so we were down for the weekend and um, decided to go for a, a trip down to Llyn. Turned in the middle of Llyn, find this looks an interesting owner and where this takes us up the side of the hill and uh, found ourselves anyway walking through the woods at the top, a uh, very narrow path which um, incidentally almost follows the road that is now but through this path to the coastline, uh, not dropping down at all, but just straight ahead. And came to the edge and looked down. Remember, Nankosan didn't have any profile at the time. Mm. I mean, it was, it was known locally, of course, but we knew nothing about it. Never heard of it, I don't think. Uh, and, and then looked over the edge and saw this incredible village lurking down in the valley about 500 feet below. Couldn't believe it. Mm. Uh, our first step was to retrace our steps and try and find our way down. And the old campfire, as it's called locally, the old very twisty, uh, very, very steep road down, which wasn't really usable for any sensible car, um, uh, we, we walked down. And of course we found the village totally empty, totally deserted. Hmm. And the last people had moved out in 1959. 
the only thing that was in place, as it might have been at the uh, the end of the fifties, was the, um, uh, the the hymns numbers up on the board in the chapel. The chapel had been maintained uh, uh, by by the by the cause in the interim period, but um, <clears throat> that was our first my first introduction to Nantgazan. Five years on, move forward five years, and of course we were living in the area. Nantgazan was part of the natural catchment of the area. Nobody living there now, and um, it seemed that with the success of Antiral here, was there not something else? one could do with this treasure if it could ever come back into our hands. Hmm. Um, it was owned by a quarrying company, Amalgamated Roadstone. Uh, they had uh, been developing the qu granite quarries along the coast there for uh, sets, these cubes of stone, hard stone to line the, the roads of the big cities away in England and in Northern Ireland, I think, uh, at one point. But those, um, that use and indeed other uses had come to an end with the advent of the car. And so the quarries had declined one at a time until the, until the last one closed in the, the 40s. Um, 2,000 men had worked in those quarries, 2,000 men, five quarries along the coast. Mm. So it's a very heavy industry in what is now, of course, an extremely rural, extremely beautiful bit of coastline, mm. heritage coast. Uh, we could never replace that, but I couldn't help but feel that this was too much of a, a treasure to allow it to just fade and disappear and not become a part of, meaningful part of, of, of society again. So I approached the company and said, is there any chance of you selling it? Hmm. And the, uh, uh, the first response was somewhat hesitant, we'll let you know. Second response, perhaps a year later, having had a response from the former manager at the quarry, who was by then over at Rennig and Abala, um, said, uh, I understand the company are now going to sell uh, if you want to make a formal, formal approach, which I did. And they said at the time that they were willing to sell it. Um, they would be making a decision within three weeks. Uh, they took, in fact, six and a half years. And um, that proved quite a long and tortuous journey. Mm, um, having showed interest, the company, not surprisingly, decided, okay, there is interest here, we need to uh, market it effectively, and they sought publicity, and not, again, not surprisingly, companies uh, uh, from all over, and more importantly, from my perspective, the press showed a lot of interest. Um, so there were articles, again, in the Times and the Guardian, the Telegraph, Colour Magazine, uh, you know, the world and his wife, it seemed, wanted to know about the this, this sale of this deserted village. There aren't many of them that come on the market. Mm. So this was one that I think drew a lot of press attention. And um, we were the only organisation, uh, by that at that point I'd gathered a group of people, friends with me, we called ourselves an embryonic trust as we were. 106 organizations showed interest in Nantgothan and we were the only one from Wales. And um, it took us six years. Uh, the company changed hands. It became part of Consolidated Goldfields. We saw, as it were, threats from BP who wanted to <clears throat> hide 
uh, oil terminals in Nantes from the outside world. Uh, at the time, there was sort of talk of, of um, developing oil in the Celtic Sea. Uh, there was a trust looking to develop it as a centre for offenders from Manchester or rehab for um, uh, drug rehabilitation from Liverpool and so on. So we had, we had many, many uh, competitors. And um, the only reason we succeeded, I think, was our PR exercise. So we got everybody, the world and his wife, to write to the company, petition, local authorities, voluntary sector organisations, companies in supportive of us to lobby the organisation. And they sold it to us finally because they saw some good publicity in it for themselves. Yeah. And I think it proves it, doesn't it? Here I am. 40 odd years later talking about ARC, which became Hansen, which is part of Heidelberg, German group by now. But I, I'm talking about it in a positive light because they showed support for us at the time. Yeah. And the company that was despoiling the countryside day in, day out, um, wanted some good publicity from somebody who they knew they would be helping genuinely. And, and, and what is Nantgwrthairn now, Carl? Can you explain a little bit of it? Nantgwrthairn then, uh, having decided we were in a position to have it, the company put us under some fair pressure to decide uh, what we were going to do with it before they would sell it, in fact. Um, not surprisingly. At the time, um, employment, of course, was a big issue, one that we learned from Llanalhean and saw the decline, say with the quarries closing, population having declined by a third in the area post-war. There was, it was incumbent on us to try and find some source of employment. Hmm. At the same time, the, the um, Welsh Language Equal Validity Act of 1967 had come to play. And there were quite a lot of public bodies at that point beginning to make some noises about providing a bilingual service. Um, recognizing the status of the, the language. Whereas they were able to appoint people perhaps who might have had professional qualifications, uh, they weren't always able to appoint people who were linguistically qualified. And it seemed one of the opportunities for Nantes, which in fact came to pass, was that if we could in some way create employment on the one hand mm. and give uh, a wherewithal of create a machine like to cumbersize, if you like, people who wanted to learn the language for their post or for their family or whatever reason, on the other, then bring the two together and that could provide a business model, yeah. which it did. And that was something that um, uh, won the day. And uh, indeed, after that, then we, we turned to Wales, the rest of Wales, and on a very, very cooperative basis, got support from learners, from local government, from charities throughout Wales on a very, very large scale to develop Nantes um, on its first phase of development. Second phase of development involved Welsh government much more and the European uh, Commission much more as well. So several million pounds came in from those two sources and private charitable sources as well in, in, in latter years. But now Nantgwrthair employs how many people? We employ, COVID notwithstanding, something over 30 during the summer. Yeah. And a turnover last year of 1.6 million. So it's, it's been a, a you know, 
very considerable success. It's done wonders for the area. Everybody employed is, is local and the language is very much the, dare I say it, the lingua franca of the community in Nantes-Concern. People come because of the uh, because of the language quite frequently, but there are weddings held as well. Mm. Um, again, the nous, the, 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 the atmosphere that it creates is, is important to people. And uh, we have conferences as well. So the bottom line is supported very well by these other events, but the very much the focus is still a core as a language center, which was its fundamental principle at the outset. So you, what you're telling uh, us here there is that yourself and those around you who are part of the establishing of Nantgurthern, you saw economic and financial value as well in the language, that you could make the language work for people um, so that they could get employment out of it. And, and clearly uh, uh, something that employed 30 people in that area of the North Keen, uh coast is a large employer. It is indeed. It's, it's, uh, it's probably one of the best examples I'm aware of, of cultural tourism. And, um, you know, we're not embarrassed about that. We, we, we promote it very, very clearly. And um, people identify with that. I mean, I don't think we should be embarrassed about it. I remember a study done some years ago by Ektark in, in um, Slangoslen, um, showing that something like 70% of visitors from Germany to Wales came because of the culture and the language. Mm -hmm. And I think we underestimate the, the interest there is. The Welsh language is one of 7,000 lesser used languages in the world, spoken by many hundreds of millions of people, of course, throughout the world. And there is a genuine interest, I think, way beyond these shores in the Welsh language. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, you know, I think we must be much more assertive, if you like, in, in, in its merits. And mm. anybody who decries it, as we've seen recently in some of the London uh, press, uh, as being some sort of add-on that we can well do without, I think they need to be mindful of its history and its legacy. It's a very powerful message. Yeah, indeed it is. But but the one thing, looking at the, the two stories that you've given us now about Antirel Hayarn and Nant Gwrthairn, uh, the one thing that um, comes out from those, to me certainly, and uh, hopefully others listening in, is um, that you and and the teams around you looked at uh, at your own two feet, at the strengths of what you had immediately to hand, and you've mentioned it a few times. Did it yourself? Um, you know, uh, you looked at what you had in Kalalhearn and what was needed, and you used the skills there locally with you and you built on what you had. In Antgurthair, the same thing, you know, you, you saw that and you had a vision and thought, right, this is what we could do, this is what we need. You brought that vision together with what was available. Um, and that, that's a really powerful uh, message um, economically as well for policymakers, because what we've seen in, certainly in Wales over the last 50 years, or so uh, uh, from policymakers is this idea that we need someone from the outside to come in and save us. And we, we've seen, you know, Lucky Gold Star and the failure of these large companies being brought in. Do, do you think, do you think that model, which we have been as, as a nation, we've been working towards of, of working with larger companies from the outside, is that uh, something we should try and emulate and work at again? Or is that a failed model and we should look at 
more what we can do ourselves, as, as you've said. Well, I don't think there's any doubt at all in my mind that if, if you want um, consistency and, and sustained development, uh, indigenous development is going to be far more reliable at the end of the day over a long period. Some of the major investments, of course, by international companies can prove short-term benefit and, and gain. But I think at the end of the day, it's, it's something that can always be subject to the vagaries of, of, of the international market. And that's something we've got to be wary of. I mean, I, I worry, for example, that the, the history of, of Wilbur has been, uh, to me, a disaster over the last 15, 20 years. Mm. If I could just use that as a case history. <clears throat> I mean, RWE and Aon, two hugely successful German companies, uh, of course, showed interest in Wilbur and formed Horizon. At the end of the day, I remember I went to Essen in Germany to the Aeon's uh, AGM and sat through the meeting um, with 5,000 shareholders in the audience and fund holders in the audience. And it became very, very clear that day that people were moving away from nuclear energy. Mm. They did not want to know, or at least they were said positively on the day, look, this is not the future, you must be investing in renewables, was, was the message that came over very clearly. Now I came home, I remember saying that to, to, to friends and colleagues. The, lo the local press, the local politicians were still rambling on about Wilbur is going to happen, going to happen, going to happen. Within six months, of course, RWE and Aon had pulled out. Mm -hmm. and, and so one has to listen, one has to listen to what companies who know what they're talking about, not just local politicians on, on, on a on a whim, as it were. And more recently, of course, we've seen Hitachi having invested two billion pounds in Wilbur, seemingly. And London government, Westminster government, offering to invest 500 million as a sweetener to get them to come, still decided not to go ahead. And yet this very week, we see our own government here in Wales saying, oh, give us another break. We may be able to persuade somebody to come. Get, they must get real. That is that is building people's hopes up, building their morale up, supposedly only to let them down flat on their face. That is a disaster, I think, for 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 the sustainability and credibility. We we uh, I just wave this if I may, yeah. um, because back in the uh, it must be your best part of ten years ago now, we produced a manifesto for Morn, and it, it showed the way ahead as to how sustainable development on the island, which needed something in the order of two and a half thousand posts, additional jobs on the island. That manifesto showed how that could be done. Not 8,000, hmm. which would have skewed, as indeed this independent report from assessors recently has, has determined, it would, it would have ruined the eco economy of the area long-term. It would have ruined the social fabric of the area, the housing of the area, the tourism of the area, it would have done untold damage as well. And it wasn't going to happen anyway, but this was a sustainable model. It looked at energy, of course it did, but not just, not nuclear. It looked at other opportunities in tourism, in the agriculture, in fishing. It, it looked at a model, economic model, and its wider context. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, the tragedy of, of, of Wilbur and everybody who's been putting their back behind Wilbur for the last 15 years is that he's taken people's eye off the ball to alternatives. There's been a huge opportunity cost there. So much resource has gone into that. I would guarantee that Morn and Welsh government have spent tens of millions of pounds over the last 20 years trying to promote Wilbur to no avail. There isn't one job on the back of it, mm -hmm. except and, 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 and we know that the Welsh economy the, the, is, is built on smaller and medium-sized, but primarily smaller employers uh, and micro-employers. Uh, and so instead of having to look at, at these huge firms, you mentioned Hitachi uh, uh, and, and others, coming in and, and all the promises that they might create thousands of jobs only to be dashed again, and then the same promise coming again and that being dashed again, Instead of, of, of looking at these uh, white knights from somewhere else, as you've shown in your own life experience in Llanheiarn and Nancurthairn, we can invest very small amounts in local knowledge, uh, in local people and communities, and ensuring that they have control over resources and that they have the ability to build up what they can locally do it themselves and jobs will be created in that way and uncertainty will be created and and the knock-on benefits to that in people's individual health and the well-being of the community comes flows from that and that's that's the kind of model which we should be looking at at promoting yeah indeed and i think one thing perhaps i haven't mentioned is is um that this kind of community initiative community cooperative model a community initiative generally can be catalysts as well for others not just within the actual group that are involved directly so it's not just what you do it's what you what you can do indirectly as well in in the community so you can highlight opportunities for others i think that's certainly been the experience in in uh, well in Llanallian and and in relation to Nantes as well Klaus, that's an inspirational contribution you've made there. Thank you very much to you for uh, this discussion uh, uh, this morning. Really do appreciate it. Diolch, um, Carl. I appreciate the opportunity. I only wish those who uh, undertake the task succeed for the sake of their community, for the sake of Wales, which incidentally, one thing I haven't mentioned, Wales is a community of communities. It was Saunders, I think, who first said that least I attribute it to him and that is a great strength we shouldn't lose sight of that. Indeed. Thank you very much.